This is Brother Eric John Phelps coming to you on July 4th, 2023 to deliver a series of messages in defense of the Declaration of Independence and how it relates to the Protestant Reformation and a series of events after that so we can see that the Declaration of Independence is a document born out of the Reformation, the Jesuit Order's Counter-Reformation, and ultimately the birth of Western civilization, formerly that would begin in 1648. So shall we pray? Father, we pray in Jesus' name you bless this broadcast on this most important topic. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. We'll start with Romans chapter 13. Romans 13 does not defend tyranny. If it did, we would have no Western civilization today. We would be ruled by the Pope and his priests as they ruled during the Dark Ages with unlimited power, ruling the people and the kings. So, we shall see in Romans 13 that it was written to defend the Lord's divine institution of government which he established in Genesis 9-6, calling for the execution of murderers. Whosoever, man's blood shall be sh whosoever shed man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Genesis 9-6, God instituted capital punishment for murderers. This government of mankind, or government for men, to punish evil, as well as to reward good, continues throughout every dispensation during which an age exists. So in Romans chapter 13, we read verses 1 through 4, that every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation, or judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Uh, and in clarifying the King James here, damnation, it doesn't mean send to hell. If you resist evil government, or if you resist government that's good, are you going to get sent to hell? Of course not. So this damnation has to do with the word judgment. People that resist this power of government will receive to themselves judgment by that government. And he goes on to defend what kind of government this is. Three, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. Showing that the purpose of government is to promote that which is good. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. The sword is to use to kill you. That's what a sword is used for. He beareth not the sword in vain, for he is the minister of God, a revenger to exercise, execute wrath upon them that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must needs be a subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, 
we do that which is good and expect a government to reward us for doing good. When we do that which is evil, we expect a government to punish us for that. And in the case of a killing another man, murdering another man, that's a capital offense. The, the punishment for that is death. Genesis 9-6. And that's never been removed in any age. So Romans 13 is for the purpose of government defined as for the uh, rewarding for men who do good and for punishing her men who do evil. First Peter chapter 2 is the same exact way. Read in First Peter chapter 2 verse tw uh, 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors, as unto them that are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. The purpose of government is for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well, exactly as Romans 13, Romans 13 sets forth, neither context defending political tyranny. Neither context defending political tyranny tyranny. Now, with that backdrop, I want to read to you the Declaration of Independence. The Declaration of Independence is put forth on July 4th, 1776 by Congress. The unanimous declaration of the 13 united, lowercase united, states of America when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, we shall see the laws of nature uh, are in other Protestant documents that I will review later on, to which the laws of nature and nature of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety, happiness, prudence, and indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design that's called conspiracy, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, 
It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let the facts be submitted to a candid world. He has refused his assent to laws, the most wholesome and necessary for the public good. He has forbidden his governors to pass laws of immediate and pressing importance, unless suspended in their operation till his assent should be obtained. And when so suspended, he has utterly neglected to attend to them. He has refused to pass other laws for the accommodation of large districts of people, unless those people would relinquish the right of representation in the legislature, a right inestimable to them and informidable to tyrants only. He has called together legislative bodies at places unusual, uncomfortable, and distant from the depository of their public records for the sole purpose of fatiguing them into compliance with his measures. <clears throat> he has dissolved representative houses repeatedly for opposing with manly firmness his invasion on the rights of the people. He has refused for a long time after such dissolutions to cause others to be elected, whereby the legislative powers incapable of annihilation have returned to the people at large for their exercise, the state remaining in the meantime exposed to all the dangers of invasion from without and convulsions within. He has endeavored to prevent the population of these states for that purpose obstructing for the for that purpose obstructing the laws for naturalization of foreigners, refusing to pass others to encourage their migrations hither, and raising the conditions of new appropriations of lands. He has obstructed the administration of justice by refusing his assent to laws for establishing judiciary judiciary powers. He has made judges dependent on his will alone for the tenure of their offices and the amount and payment of their salaries. He has erected a multitude of new offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people and eat out their substance. <clears throat> he has kept among us in times of peace standing armies without the consent of our legislatures. He has affected to render the military independent of and superior to the civil power. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws, giving his assent to their acts of pretended legislation. For quartering large bodies of armed troops among us, for protecting them by a mock trial, from punishment for any murders which they should commit on the inhabitants of these states, for cutting off our trade with all parts of the world, for imposing taxes on us without our consent, 
for depriving us in many cases of the benefits of trial by jury, for transporting us beyond the seas to be tried for pretended offenses, for abolishing the free system of English laws in a neighboring province, that's Quebec, establishing therein an arbitrary government and enlarging its boundaries so as to render it at once an example and fit instrument for introducing the same absolute rule in these colonies. For taking away our charters, abolishing our most valuable laws, and altering fundamentally the forms of our governments. For suspending our own legislatures and declaring themselves invested with power to legislate for us in all cases whatsoever. He has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burnt our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death. These would be the Germans. Foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death desolation and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy the head of a civilized nation. He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare <clears throat> is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. In every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act which may define a tyrant is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. <clears throat> Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature, that's their parliament, to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity, magnanimity being highly moral, generous in forgiving an insult or injury, and magnanimity, and we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations, which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They, have, they too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. And consanguinity is relationship by blood or common ancestor. Consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war and in peace friends. We therefore, the representatives of the United, that's lowercase united, States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, 
do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may have right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. But we must ask the question, how did this Declaration of Independence come about? To answer that question, we must go back in history some 200 years prior to the Declaration of Independence. And we will start with Martin Luther when he contends against the temporal power of the Pope in 1519 as he debates Dr. Eck. But before we go there, I have to always predicate anything I say about Martin Luther with the fact that he never wrote on the Jews and their lives. The Jesuits are the authors of that horrible forgery that unfortunately most Christian people believe Martin Luther wrote that abomination. And I show in a particular work that I've done that Luther could never have written that. He did not write it. And I will show you the, one of the great proofs for this as we read in The Complete Sermons of Martin Luther, Volume 1.1-2, edited by John Nicholas Lenker, who was the foremost American historian on Martin Luther. And we read in his Volume 1.1, a quotation from Martin Luther on page 237 of his great work. Paragraph 32. Finally, comfort is spoken here to the Jews when the evangelist adds, Verily I say unto you, you shall not see me henceforth, till you shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Christ spake these words on Tuesday, after Palm Sunday, and they form the conclusion and the last words of his preaching upon earth. Hence they are not yet fulfilled, but they must be fulfilled. True, they did once receive him on Palm Sunday, but these words were not fulfilled on that occasion. Quote, you shall not see me henceforth, unquote, is not to be understood in the sense that they never saw him afterwards in the body, because they did, and that they afterwards crucified him. He means they shall not see him again as a preacher and as Christ, to which end he was sent. His office and he in his office were never seen again by them. In this he gave them his last, his farewell sermon, and his office for which he came was now closed. Paragraph 33. Thus it is certain that the Jews must yet say to Christ, quote, Blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, unquote. This very truth Moses proclaimed in Deuteronomy 4, 
verses 30 and 31, quote, In the latter days thou shalt return to Jehovah thy God, and hearken unto his voice. For Jehovah thy God is a merciful God. He will not fail thee, neither destroy thee, nor forget the covenant of thy fathers which he sware unto them. Unquote. That's the Abrahamic covenant. It was also preached in Hosea chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. Quote, the children of Israel shall abide many days without king, and without prince, and without sacrifice, and without pillar, and without ephod or teraphim. Afterwards shall the children of Israel return, and seek Jehovah their God, and David their king, and shall come with fear unto Jehovah, and to his goodness in the latter days. Unquote. Likewise, Azariah declared this truth in 2 Chronicles 15, verses 2 through 5. Thus, quote, If you forsake Jehovah, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel was without the true God, and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned on Jehovah, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found of them. Unquote. This passage cannot be understood as referring to the Jews of the present time. They were never before without princes, without prophets, without priests, and without teachers of the law. St. Paul in Romans 11, chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, agrees with this thought and says, quote, A hardening in part hath befallen Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. And so all Israel shall be saved, unquote. Now here's what Luther says, his final comment. God grant that this time may be near at hand, as we hope it is. Amen. This is not the Martin Luther that wrote on the Jews and their lies. This is not the Jews and their lies is not the doctrine of Luther, nor the belief, nor the futuristic belief of Martin Luther that the nation of Israel would be restored pursuant to Romans 11, verses 25 and 26. This is the real Martin Luther, not the Martin Luther of on the Jews and their lies that was concocted by the Jesuits and their great lead Jesuit during the Third Reich, the minister of propaganda, Joseph Goebbels, held up on the Jews and their lies, an original copy, which was a bold-faced lie, seeking to blame the entire Eurasian Jewish Holocaust on Martin Luther, and they would start it. They would start Kristallnacht on Martin Luther's birthday, which was November 10th. The Jesuits wanted to portray the Lutheran Church, and especially Martin Luther, the great reformer, the one who launched the Protestant Reformation to be the hater of the Jews. And so we reject that. And we know this design of the Jesuits, and hence we are not going to be afflicted by that lie that Luther was the author upon the Jews and their lies. Now, let's go and read somewhat of Martin Luther in the great work titled The History of Romanism by John Dowling, written in 1845. We now read from The History of Romanism by the great John Dowling, who was a Berean. And we read from his 1845 work on page 460 on this wonderful, concerning this wonderful day of the 4th of July. Section 93, page 460. 
Eken Luther met his combatants at Leipzig, and the public disputation between them continued, commenced on the 4th of July. This is why we declared independence in 1776 on the 4th of July. Witherspoon and others who were Presbyterian Calvinists knew of this day <clears throat> when Luther was debating Eck, the great Roman Catholic theologian of his day. And so that's why they rang the Liberty Bell on July 4th, because Luther would be debating Eck on a very important topic. Again, Eck and Luther met as combatants at Leipzig, and the public disputation between them commenced on the 4th of July. The subject was the primacy of the Pope. Quote, the doctor, unquote, said Eck, quote, requires of me a proof that the primacy of the Church of Rome is of divine right, in italics. I find that proof in the words of Christ, quote, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, unquote. St. Augustine, in one of his epistles, has thus explained the meaning of the passage. Quote, Thou art Peter, and on this rock, that is to say, on Peter, I will build my church, unquote. It is true that Augustine has elsewhere said that by this rock we must understand Christ himself, but he has not retracted his first explanation, unquote, by Dr. Eck. Quote, if the reverend doctor, unquote, replied Luther, brings against me these words of St. Augustine, let him himself first reconcile such opposite assertions. For certain it is that St. Augustine has repeatedly said that the rock was Christ, and hardly once that it was Peter himself. But even though St. Augustine and all the fathers should say that the apostle is the rock of which Christ spake, I would, if I should stand alone, deny the assertion, supported by the authority of the Holy Scripture, in other words, by divine right, for it is written, quote, other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, even Christ Jesus. Peter himself calls Christ the chief cornerstone and living rock on which we are built up a spiritual house, unquote. It was during this discussion that Luther ventured publicly to speak with approval of some of the doctrines of Wycliffe and Hess in the following words, unquote, among the articles of John Huss and the Bohemians, there are some that are most agreeable to Christ. This is certain, and if this sort is that article, quote, there is only one church universal, unquote, and again, quote, that it is not necessary to salvation that we should believe the Roman church superior to others, unquote. It matters little to me whether Wycliffe or Huss said it. It is truth, unquote, said Luther. These words produced an immense sensation on the audience. Some expressed aloud their feelings at the temerity of a monk in a Catholic assembly, speaking with respect of Wycliffe and Huss, those execrable heresarchs, in other words, leaders of heresy, whom the church had condemned, anathematized, and burned. Luther did not give way to this burst of murmurs. Quote, Gregory Nazarism, quote, continued he with noble calmness, quote, Basil the Great, Epiphanius, Chrysostom, and a great, great army of other Greek bishops are saved, 
and yet they never believed that the Church of Rome was superior to other churches. It does not belong to the Roman pontiffs to add new articles of faith. There is no authority for the believing Christian but the Holy Scripture. It alone is of divine right. I beg the worthy Dr. Eck to grant me that the Roman pontiffs have been men and not to speak of them as if they were gods." Unquote. So Luther goes after the primacy of the Pope on July 4, 1519 in his debate with Dr. Eck. The primacy of the Pope is not only spiritual primacy, but temporal primacy. That the Pope doesn't have the power to rule governments of the world. If he doesn't have the universal spiritual power, which is symbolized by the gold key on the Vatican flag, he doesn't have universal temporal power, which is symbolized by the silver key on the Vatican flag, which is the same silver key on display at NSA headquarters in Washington, in Fort Meade, Maryland. So, our founding fathers, namely Witherspoon and others, said we are going to declare independence on this great day when Luther pounded the primacy of the Pope in 1519 on the 4th of July. The Reformation will continue to prosper. John Calvin will be the leader in Geneva. Men will be taught by him. One of those men was John Knox out of Scotland. And John Knox will be the leader of the Reformation in Scotland in the 1500s. John Knox would write a book called The History of the Reformation. And he would be one of the first ones to introduce the concept of the sword of just defense in the face of political tyranny overseen and directed by the priests of Rome. And this is exactly what we have here in America today. We have an emergency war powers military government, Washington, have for 90 years, and it's run by the priests of Rome, particularly the Jesuits out of Georgetown University. So this is very relevant for us today. And so we read in his work, page 166, The History of the Reformation by John Knox. He writes of a letter that he wrote to Mary, Queen of Scots, who was persecuting the Lord's people in Scotland. Remember, she would be the mother of King James I. And remember, King James I would be baptized by John Knox. King James I in England would be the one authorizing the English translation called the King James Bible that would be taken to the ends of the earth and considered to be the greatest book ever written, apart from the Hebrew and Greek scriptures, of course. So we're going to read here now this, as we see these chain of events, we're going to read this letter that John Knox wrote, wrote to Mary, Queen of Scots. Quote, To the Queen's grace, regent, and all humble obedience and duty, premised, quote, As heretofore with jeopard of our lives, or in jeopardy of our lives, and yet with willing hearts we have served the authority of Scotland, and your grace, now regent in this realm, in service, in our bodies, dangerous and painful. So now, with most dolorous minds, 
means we're burdened, we're not happy, okay? We are constrained by unjust tyranny purposed against us. Kind of like the same words used in Declaration of Independence, evincing a design to reduce us to abject slavery. We are constrained by unjust tyranny purposed against us to declare unto your grace that except this cruelty be stayed by your wisdom, we will be compelled to take the sword of just defense against all that shall pursue us for the matter of religion and for our conscience' sake, which ought not nor may not be subject to mortal creatures, farther than by God's word man be able to prove that he hath power to command us. In other words, by the power of government. We are, but our consciences are not going to be bound, and we are going to take up the sword of just defense against those men that you send out after us to persecute and kill us, and those men are run by the priests. And in particular, at that time, probably the Dominicans. Although at this time, it's only 1559, the Jesuits have been created. They're created in 1540, so you got the Jesuits overseeing Bloody Mary, uh, Mary Queen of Scots. Not Bloody Mary, but Mary Queen of Scots. To the killing out of the Reformation and Bible-believing Scotsmen out of Scotland. And Knox says, you're going to compel us to take up the sword of just offense. And they did. These were the Covenanters, of which more can be said, and I cannot go into it right now. But they were Calvinistic. Knox was Calvinistic in taking up the sword of just offense. And this would be a doctrine of true biblical Calvinism that the Calvinists, when persecuted for conscience sake, in addition to all the other things that the Jesuits are doing through government, they would take up the sword of just offense. That's true Calvinism. Not just the tulip. Taking up the sword of just offense against the government that set out to destroy you. That is Bible. That is Romans 13. When a government ceases to praise that which is good and reward that and punish that which is evil, it should be resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Hebrews 12, 4. For you have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, as the apostle rebukes his own Hebrew brethren in Christ. We should do it. And that's exactly what the Puritans did. That's what the Covenanters did. That's what the Calvinists did when they took up the sword of just defense. In the 1550s and thereon, at the preaching of John Knox. Now we read a footnote, a commentary, a footnote by the author, by the editor here of this great work. It's edited by Mr. Guthrie. And he writes here, whatever was the cause, and this is on page 270 in a footnote, whatever was the cause, the Calvinists were the only fighting Protestants. It was they whose faith gave them courage to stand up for the Reformation. And but for them, the Reformation would have been crushed. This is why I admire them and feel there was something in their creed that made them what they were. I entirely agree with Knox in his horror 
of that one mass. If it had not been for Calvinists, Huguenots, those are French Calvinists, Puritans, those are English and Dutch Calvinists, and whatsoever you like to call them, the Pope and Philip, that's Philip II, King of Spain, the Pope and Philip would have won. And we should either be papists or socialists, unquote. And the editor quotes Sir John Skelton's Mary Stewart, page 192. Folks, the Declaration of Independence is a white Anglo-Saxon Presbyterian and Baptist Calvinist document. Period. It is not a pagan document. As I was taught in Bible College, and at Lancaster Bible College, by some leftist liberal professor, a couple of them. So, and I shall now prove to you that it is not a pagan document because the one who promoted it most of all was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Presbyterian Calvinist named John Witherspoon, who was the founder of Princeton College in New Jersey. I trust you're beginning to see how a, a people that does not read the Bible and that's not going to bear the sword of just defense for freedom of conscience sake, a people that does not know its past history can never resist the present Jesuit tyranny in the United States centered in District of Columbia for the last 90 years since March 9, 1933 when FDR imposed emergency war powers military government by Proclamation 2040 as overseen by his Master Jesuit Edmund A. Walsh of Georgetown University. This is when the Jesuits used the military power of the commander-in-chief to impose military government, exactly as would be resisted by the Texans in 1836 with their Declaration of Independence. But I'll get to that. So going back to John Witherspoon, we read, in a great work, titled The Chaplains and Clergy of the Revolution by J.T. Headley. He's my favorite historian, American historian. He's even better than George Bancroft. By J.T. Headley, he writes this in 1864. And here is what he, what's written here concerning John Witherspoon, concerning the Declaration of Independence. On page 383, we read, quote, when the Declaration was reported and laid before Congress for their adoption and signature, everyone felt that a fearful crisis had come. Some true patriots wavered. The step which should forever separate them entirely from the mother country and plunge the land in a war, the end of which no man could foresee, was a momentous one to take. But the hour of decision had arrived. And not only the fate of a great nation, but of man the world over hung suspended on it. That august body felt a tremendous responsibility that rested upon it. And a deep and solemn silence reigned throughout the hall. In the midst of it, Witherspoon arose and said, quote, Mr. President, that noble instrument on your table 
which ensures immortality to its author, should be subscribed this very morning by every pen in the house. Now here is a Presbyterian Calvinist minister, founder of Princeton College, one of the most influential men in the colonies, advocating the signing of the Declaration of Independence that I was taught was a pagan document in Bible college. Which I knew it wasn't true then, but some of those professors there were a little pink. He goes on, and we read here, that noble instrument on the table, which ensures immortality to its author, should be subscribed, signed, this very morning by every pen in the house. He who will not respond to its accents and strain every nerve to carry into effect its provisions is unworthy the name of Freeman. Freeman. That's what I teach you how to be in my private citizenship class. How to return to be a pre-March 9th, 1933 private citizen of the United States, private American national, not a U.S. citizen, and you're a Freeman, American Freeman. He goes on, although these gray hairs must descend into the sepulcher, that's the grave, I would infinitely rather that they should descend thither by the hand of the executioner than desert at this crisis the sacred cause of my country, unquote. So here is a Presbyterian Calvinist who's a nationalist. You see how nationalists founded the country? How Bible-believing nationalists signed the Declaration of Independence? The venerable man sat down, but those great words continued to vibrate in each heart, strengthening the firm and giving courage to the wavering, because he's a leading preacher. John Witherspoon's a leading preacher in the colonies. He's known everywhere in New Jersey. He's taught several of the founders. He taught George Mason. In other words, John Witherspoon is, a, is, the key, is God's key man for this moment to motivate those in that hall in Philadelphia to sign the Declaration of Independence. And when a timid member remarked that the country was not ripe for such a Declaration of Independence, Witherspoon replied in the voice that rung through the hall, Witherspoon replied in a voice that rung through the hall, quote, In my judgment, sir, we are not only ripe, but rotten, unquote. With an untremulous hand and a heart firm and steady, he put his name to that immortal instrument. He continued a member of Congress for six years and became identified with some of the most important measures adopted by that body. He was a member of the Secret Committee and of the Board of War and one of the most active men in the various committees to which he was appointed. He made a report to Congress of the cruel treatment of prisoners by the British in New York and helped prepare a protest on, that, on the subject. He was sent also to the headquarters of the Army to improve the condition of the troops and was constantly employed in devising measures for the welfare of the colonies. Although a member of Congress, he never laid aside his ministerial character, but preached on the Sabbath and always wore his clerical robes in Congress during its sittings. 
<laughs> he wrote most of the congressional addresses to, to the country recommending fasts, etc. Quote, his thoughts on American liberty, unquote, and his speeches in Congress against the prodigal issue of paper money, as a hard money man just like Roger Sherman, and other state papers are well known and can only be referred to here. In the darkest hour, his courage never faltered, for to a high heroic spirit, he, sub he added an unwavering trust in God and he believed that he would eventually enable us to triumph. Far-seeing and sagacious, he seemed to anticipate evils and escape the observation of others and provided against them. When Thomas Paine, though in the fresh popularity of his quote-unquote crisis, was proposed as secretary to the Committee of Foreign Affairs, he, Witherspoon, strenuously opposed his appointment, not deeming him, he said, a safe man for the office. Witherspoon knew Payne was a pagan. For, so also when Wilkinson made his tardy appearance on the floor of Congress with the stand, standard sent to it by General Gates, that's Granny Gates, Gates would have lost the war had not George Washington been the leading commanding general. And a member moved that the bearer be voted a costly sword for his service, he, that's Witherspoon, seeing through all this delay and penetrating the contemptible designs of him and Gates that afterward assume more definite shape to unseat Washington as commander-in-chief, Witherspoon arose and with an emphasis and tone that pierced like a dagger proposed in place of a sword that the monsignor, that the messenger should be, quote, rewarded with a pair of golden spurs, unquote. <laughs> Get him out of here. Get him on his horse and have him ride off. That's John Witherspoon. This bold, this brave, this preacher, this Presbyterian Calvinist led in the signing of the Declaration of Independence was no pagan. He was key in the success of our wonderful and glorious American Revolution. But this American Declaration is not new in the history of the Protestant Reformation and Calvinism. We're going to go back a little bit and we're going to read of the first Declaration of Independence that was born out of the Reformation and it's called the Dutch Independence Act of Ab Abjuration of 1581. Remember, the Dutch were involved in a war with Spain that would last for 80 years. And it was terrible. But during this war, in 1581, the Dutch people, the Dutch government, they were put forth their... Dutch Declaration of Independence called the Act of Abjuration. And I will read to you from a website called theageofthesage.org. We're going to read the introductory paragraph here. Toward the end of the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages. The Jesuits don't want you to call it the Dark Ages, they want you to call it the Middle Ages. Toward the end of the Dark Ages, many of the large cities of the Netherlands had bought or won charters, giving them many rights of freedom. But when Charles V came to the throne of Spain, he disregarded these charters. When Calvinism spread over the Low Countries, those are the Dutch provinces, 
He introduced the Inquisition and tried to root it out. The Jesuits hated the Calvinists. They still do to this day, true Calvinists. And will seek anything they can to kill us off. And here they use the Inquisition. Philip II of Spain increased the persecution. The people rebelled in 1566, and the Duke of Alva, that's savage, I would add, was sent into the country with 10,000 crack Spanish troops, I would add, to put down the rebellion. The people elected William of Orange as their leader. The wonderful, good William of Orange would later be saved and later assassinated by Balthazar Gerard, shot with poison bullets, murdered by the Jesuits. William of Orange is their leader, and the Dutch Revolt began. The war lasted for 40 years and varied, and, uh, varied fortunes, with varied fortunes. The Prince of Orange was, Orange was assassinated in 1584, but the struggle went on under his second, under his second son, Prince Morris, a boy of 17. First England and then France came to their aid. Finally, in 1609, a truce was established which ended in the acknowledgement of the provinces in 1648. It's called the Treaty of Munster as one of the provisions of the Treaty of Westphalia. And it's at this time that you have the Presbyterians in Scotland coming out with the great Westminster Confession of Faith in 1648 with the beginning of the modern era and the Pope's temporal power having been broken by the Dutch and the English and the Germans. Praise God, the German Lutherans. So this is the first decoration in modern times, and I'm just going to read some high points of this. And so we read, It is apparent to all that a prince is constituted by God to be ruler of a people, to defend them from oppression and violence as the shepherd his sheep. And whereas God did not create the people slaves to their prince to obey his commands, whether right or wrong, but rather the prince for the sake of the subjects without which he could be no prince, to govern them according to equity. Equity is that which is fair, just, and right. To love and support them as a father his children or a shepherd his flock, and even at the hazard of life to defend and preserve them. And when he does not behave thus, but on the contrary oppresses them, seeking opportunities to infringe their ancient customs and privileges, exacting from them slavish compliance, then he is no longer a prince but a tyrant, and the subjects are to consider him, no, him in no other view. And particularly when this is done deliberately, Unauthorized by the states, they may not only disallow his authority, but legally proceed to the choice of another prince for their defense. This is the only method left for subjects whose humble petitions and remonstrances could never soften the prince or dissuade him from his tyrannical proceedings. And this is what the law of nature dictates for the defense of liberty. These are Calvinists here. These are Bible-believing Dutch Reformed Calvinists who use the term law of nature, and that's the exact same term that's used in the American Declaration of Independence by that Calvinist John Witherspoon. So don't tell me it's a pagan Roman phrase, which is what I was taught in Bible college. 
So, they're no longer sovereign, they're a tyranny. And so, talks about the Spain who had instituted this tyranny over them. They introduced the Inquisition in the Low Countries to kill out the Calvinists. And he goes on and states, says what these guys, that this, the king had done here. He says, to admit the new bishops immediately and put them in possession of their bishoprics and incorporated abbeys. And then he goes on and he says, to hold the court of the Inquisition in the places where it had been before, to obey and follow the decrees and ordinances of the Council of Trent. That's the Jesuit Orders Council of Trent from 1545 to 1563. That's where they put Bible-believing Protestants and Baptists under 100, over 100 curses. A curse would be the heretics. A curse And they're going to implement the Council of Trent through the Inquisition and the government of the Netherlands to kill out the Reformation in the Netherlands. So he goes on. Talk about a rigorous Inquisition, capital punishments for those who, in the matters of religion, freedom of conscience. He talks about their, his inhuman cruelties, looked upon as one of his greatest, of his greatest enemies. Those who resisted him, he sentenced them to death, which was publicly and ignominiously, that means shamefully, executed. And then he goes on and says, the others, better acquainted with Spanish hypocrisy, residing in foreign countries, were declared outlawed and had their estates confiscated so that the poor subjects could make no use of their fortresses, nor to be assisted by their princes in defense of their liberty against the violence of the Pope. This declaration calls up, talks about the violence of the Pope, the Council of Trent, the priests persecuting them using the Spanish king, and then bringing in German troops to further persecute the Dutch people. So he talks about these proclamations that the, that the Holy Roman Emperor gave, uh, Philip II. Declare all the people as rebels and outlaws and confiscate their estates. This is exactly what FDR did on March 9, 1933. He put, made all of us enemies belligerents living in occupied territories when he seized every person, place, and thing on the 6th of March with Proclamation 2039. And all of our estates were effectively confiscated to the commander-in-chief, he having legal title to them since then. What he did in March of 1933 had been done in the Netherlands in, 15, in the 1500s. Treating the inhabitants as enemies under their governors. He talked about dividing and weakening the, pro the provinces, having proclamations, they assassinated the Prince of Orange. Well, they would assassinate Kennedy in 1963 because he's going to go against the temporal power of the Pope and want to end Cardinal Spellman's Vietnam War. It's the same game. It's the same Jesuit papacy. What they're doing in the Netherlands here that caused the Declaration of Independence, they're doing now in America, which calls for a Declaration of Independence. By the way, the greatest mistake the South made, I maintain, is they never declared their independence from the United States of America. They passed ordinances of secession. They had a right to do that, but they would have a much stronger argument among the Protestants of the North had they declared their independence, as did the colonies, and as did the Dutch, and as did 
did uh, Mecklenburg County in North Carolina, but we'll get to that. So, they conclude here in this Declaration of Independence, the Dutch Declaration, the Act of the German, of abjuring uh, their uh, allegiance to the Holy Roman Emperor. He says, Know all men by these presents, that being reduced to the last extremity, as above mentioned, we have unanimously and deliberately declared, and do by these presents declare, that the King of Spain has forfeited ipso jure, it's a matter of law, all hereditary right to the sovereignty of those countries, and are determined from henceforward not to acknowledge his sovereignty or jurisdiction, nor any act of his relating to the domains of the Low Countries, nor make use of his name as prince, nor suffer others to do it. And they go on, name a few more things here. And witness whereof we have hereto, hereunto set our hands and seals, dated in our assembly at the Hague, the 6th and 20th day of July, 1581, endorsed by the orders of the same of the States Generals and signed. Who wrote that? Well, it was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Dutchman, Calvinist. That's who wrote the Dutch Declaration of Independence. How about another one? Here's the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence in 1775, of which 22, thereabouts, thoroughgoing Calvinists of Mecklenburg County of North Carolina declared their independence from King George in England one year before the Declaration of Independence thereabouts. It was put forth in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, May 31st, 1775. There's historians who deny it, but they're Jesuit historians. They don't want us to know this, because this is all factual. And so they have five resolutions here with their Declaration of Independence. First, resolve that whosoever directly or indirectly abetted or in any way, form, or manner countenance the uncharted and dangerous invasion of our rights as claimed by Great Britain is an enemy to this county, county, uh, to America and to the inherent and alienable rights of man. Two, resolve that we, the citizens of Mecklenburg County, do hereby dissolve the political bands which have connected us to the mother country, and hereby absolve ourselves from all allegiance to the British crown, and abjure all political connection, contract, or association with that nation who have wantingly trampled on our rights and liberties, and inhumanly shed the innocent blood of American patriots at Lexington. So what was done at Lexington, the shot fired around the world, inspired the declaration of the Mecklenburg Declaration here. Three, result, that we do hereby declare ourselves a free and independent people who are and of right ought to be a sovereign and self-governing association. The, a county? A sovereign association, self-governing association, under the control of no power other than that of our God and the general government of the Congress. To the maintenance of which independence we solemnly pledge to each other our mutual cooperation, our lives, our fortunes, and our most sacred honor. Where that was put in the Declaration of Independence by the five authors who authored it. Jefferson was a leading author, author, but he was one of five authors of the American Declaration of Independence. Another one was Roger Sherman, a Presbyterian Calvinist. Four, result. That is, we now acknowledge the existence and control of no law or legal officers, civil or military, within this county. We do hereby ordain and adopt as a rule of life 
all, each and every of our former laws, where the crown of Great Britain never can be considered as holding rights, privileges, immunities, or authority therein. 5. It is also further decreed that all, each and every military officer of this county is hereby reinstated to his former command and authority, he acting conformably to these regulations, and that every member president of this declaration shall henceforth be a civil officer, a justice of the peace, to issue process, hearing determine all matters of controversy according to said adopted laws, and to preserve peace and union and harmony in said county, and to use every exertion to spread the love of country and fire of freedom throughout America until a more general and organized government be established in this province. End. That's the Mecklenburg Declaration. Did you know, my dear listener, that your county can declare its independence to, from Washington? District of Catholics, District of Communists, District of Conspirators. Did you know that? You don't have to wait for your state to declare its independence because they're not going to do it. The Jesuits run all the state houses in this country. That's why they brought all these alien Hispanic Roman Catholics into every state house area of every state. So this could never be done from Harrisburg. It's got to be done from a county like Lebanon County where I live. Yeah. This is our white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Calvinist history. Here is a comment from the Council of Chalcedon. It's a report from November 1986. And he writes here, the author writes, Jonathan W. Williams, talks about the effect of the Covenanters and the, and the Calvinists, the Presbyterian Calvinists, on the writing of the Declaration of Independence. On May 20th, 1775, one year before the Declaration of Independence was signed in Philadelphia, the Scotch-Irish Presbyterians of Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, met in Charlotte to declare their independence from the government of Great Britain. And he says, those that adopted these declarations were the following, were the offspring of the Scotch Covenanters. This assembly that met in Char Charlotte to declare their independence from Great Britain was made up of 27 thoroughgoing Calvinists. Ephraim Brevard, the secretary, was a ruling elder and also a graduate of Princeton College. And if that's the case, guess who taught him? John Witherspoon, the one who led in the signing of the Declaration of Independence a year later. He presumed the Declaration... He presented the Declaration. His brother Adam Brevard is said to have written the Declaration. Adam Brevard, a lawyer, was reported to have used the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was finished and put forth in 1648, which at that time contained the Scottish Covenants as a guide in preparing the document. There is no Declaration of Independence without previously the Mecklenburg Declaration. And there is no Mecklenburg Declaration without the previous act of adjournment of the Dutch, their Declaration of Independence in 1581. Do you see how declarations of independence are white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and Baptist, Calvinist documents? Do you realize one of the signers was a Baptist Calvinist of the Declaration of Independence? John Hart, a Baptist Calvinist, signed it. Now here's our last Declaration of Independence, and I'll have to go.
It's called the Unanimous Declaration of Independence made by the delegates of the people of Texas in General Convention of the Town of Washington the second day of March, 1836. And they start out pretty much the same. When a government has ceased to protect the lives, liberty, and property of the people from whom its legitimate powers are derived and for the advancement of whose happiness it was instituted, and so far from being a guarantee for the enjoyment of those inestimable and, un and unalienable rights, becomes an instrument in the hands of evil rulers for their oppression. When the federal, republican constitution of their country, that would be Mexico at the time, which they have sworn to support, no longer has a substantial existence, and the whole nature of their government has been forcibly changed without their consent, from a restricted federative republic composed of sovereign states to a consolidated central military despotism in which every interest is disregarded but that of the army and the priesthood. The army and the priesthood. That's what it is today. We have a centralized despotism in Washington and everything's about the military and the priesthood who runs it. By the way, in talking with an individual, he told me that most of the SEALs are Protestants, but the ones who command the SEALs are Roman Catholics. The creator of SEAL Team 6 was an Italian Roman Catholic, or Cinco. The Jesuits run the American military, and they oversee it through Washington, District of Catholics, District of Communists, District of Corruptors to the detriment and destruction of white Anglo-Saxon Protestant people. And I would add, what's wrong with you white men going to fight with the SEALs or the Delta Force or the Green Beret fighting for the Pope? Time to repent. So he says, both, and he talks about the army and the priesthood, both eternal enemies of civil liberty, the ever-ready minions of power and the usual instruments of tyrants. He talks about the mercenary army sent forth to force a new government upon them at the point of a bayonet. Now, this whole alien Hispanic invasion is a mercenary army. And you think those senators in Washington, be they Republicans or Democrats, would protect Texas or any other state from these savages coming in here, committing crimes everywhere against us? We're under invasion by an army overseen by the Jesuits welcoming them in through the border. Come in! And you got a statue of the Pope down there in Arizona with his hands up there welcoming them into America. We're under invasion! And Calvinists resisted. It goes on. He says the first law of nature is the right of self-preservation. And he goes on and says that we have a right to abolish such government and create another in its stead. It's time for Texas and any other state to declare its independence from that tyranny in Washington run by the Jesuits of Georgetown. Because Washington, District of Catholics, District of Columbia, is nothing more than Rome and the Potomac. And you think it's going to get better? When did they detonate the place and move the capital to Denver, which they're already doing right now? Then you're going to unite with them now? They're going to go after whoever they're going to blame for blowing up Washington? Is that what you're going to do, white men? It's time to repent, and it's time to separate from District of Columbia. They, don't, they couldn't care less about the Declaration of Independence. They've neutralized it. The country that was created by the Declaration of Independence no longer exists. 
The 14th Amendment made federal citizenship national. It made federal government a national government. And the Proclamation 2040 in 1933 imposed a military government for the, for the national republic. That, the Declaration of Independence no longer exists. It's a, it's a byword and something we can remember with tears that's been abolished. And none of your preachers had anything to say about it except pretend that we're now under with it since 200 and some year of American independence. That's a lie! A terrible lie. I don't go out and celebrate the Declaration of Independence. It's dead. I have a day of mourning and sadness and sorrow and, and introspection. That's what I'm doing here on the 4th of July. What a horrible, terrible thing been done to us. And nobody told us. Just go fight for your country. Thank you for your service. And a bunch of trash! It goes on. Nations as well as individuals are amenable for their acts to the public opinion of mankind. A statement of a part of our grievances is therefore submitted to an impartial world in justification for the hazardous but unavoidable step now taken of severing our political connection with the Mexican people. He goes on, the Mexican government by its colonization laws invited and induced the Anglo-American population, that's the white population, of Texas to colonize this wilderness under the pledged faith of a written constitution. In this expectation, they've been cruelly disappointed inasmuch as the Mexican nation has acquiesced in the late changes made in the government by General Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, that Freemason and servant of the Jesuit order. When you Texans resisted Santa Ana, you were fighting the Jesuits. And when Sam Houston didn't kill that sinner after he conquered him at San Jacinto. That was a Masonic agreement, and that's why if you're going to have a nation that's truly independent, you've got to get rid of the Masonic Lodge. It's got to go. Just as Tsar Alexander I kicked it out of Russia in 1822, God bless him for it, for which he was poisoned. He kicked out the Jesuits in 1820, shut down all the Masonic Lodges in 1822, and he was poisoned with porridge in 1825. So what? He did a good thing. Better to, better to die well than to live subject to these secret societies, serving the devil's pope. Go on. And he says, Aunt Santa Anna, who having overturned the constitution of this country, now offers us a cruel alternative, either to abandon our homes acquired by so many privations, or submit to the most intolerable of all tyranny. The most intolerable of all tyranny. The combined despotism of the sword and the priesthood. That's the Texas Declaration of Independence, folks. That's these Calvinists down there in Texas declaring their independence from a Roman Catholic priesthood nation set out to destroy them. And when they declared their independence in 1836, they knew Mexico was going to attack. They knew they were coming up. And that's why God sent Zachary Taylor and General Winfred Scott down to Mexico and invaded in 1846 to prevent the invasion of Mexico into Texas. Praise God and glory, hallelujah. And one more thing. Uh, Winfred Scott was such a benevolent general, and he forbade any of his troops to rob, rape, or pillage. And by the way, the man that would be known as Stonewall Jackson would be down there, who spoke fluent Spanish. The Mexican people invited Winfred Scott to resign his commission and come govern Mexico. That's a fact! But oh no, 
Nothing could be said good of any white men, can it? Isn't that right, my Mexican friend, my Hispanic friend? There ain't no good any Anglos, are there? Yeah. You loved Winfred Scott. Your forerunners loved him. Broke the power of the Jesuits in Santa Ana for a while. And not long after that, Benito Juarez would seek to expel the Jesuits. He's poisoned at his desk in 1872, but the Mexican government expels them in 1873. You Mexicans expelled the Jesuits in 1873. You ought to be given a medal for it. But the beginning of your suffering was back here when we had to invade your country to keep the Jesuits from using your men as an army to invade Texas. It goes on. It has sacrificed our welfare to the state of Cahulia, by which our interests have been continually depressed through a jealous and partial course of legislation, carried on at a far distant seat of government by a hostile majority of an unknown town. It goes on. He says, It has failed to establish any public system education, although possessed of almost boundless resources, the public domain, and although it's an axiom in political science that unless the people are educated and enlightened, that means being taught true history, being taught the Bible, it is idle to expect the continuance of civil liberty or the capacity of self-government. And that's where we are today because we have no educational system in this country. It's a brainwashed, immoral, wicked system designed to dumb us down, stupefy us, and fit us for servitude by a tyrannical government ultimately to facilitate an invasion of China and Russia and Muslim nations to then ply their trade of torture and murder on us. That's what's going to happen. Warned about it for over 20 years, the Sino-Soviet Muslim invasion. Talked about they rendered the military superior to the civil power. So it's made piratical attacks upon our commerce by commissioning foreign desperados, authorizing them to seize our vessels, convey the property of our citizens to far distant ports of confiscation, denies us the right of worshiping the Almighty according to the dictates of our own conscience. Freedom of conscience is a Protestant, Baptist, Calvinist doctrine. It is not a doctrine of the papacy or any other religion on the face of the Lord's earth. Only Bible-believing Protestants and Baptists have it written in their confessions of faith concerning freedom of conscience. The Muslims haven't done it, the Buddhists don't do it, the Hindus don't do it, and definitely the Roman Catholics don't do it, and the Jews don't do it. None of them do it. So why should we give them freedom of conscience when they come here, when they want to oppress us? Only people that should have freedom of conscience are those that have it within their doctrines of their confessions of faith. And everybody else, you can go off killing each other in your own countries, enforcing your, your satanic religion on people that don't want to hear it. But that's your issue. That's not my issue. goes on. It has invaded our country both by sea and by land with intent to lay waste our territory. That's what the Yankee banditti army did to the south in the war of northern aggression and drive us from our homes, and is now a large mercenary army. That's when they brought in all the Irish Catholics, by the way, and, and, and the North promised them, what, uh, $400 in citizenship if they fight against the South. It's the same tactics, okay? Not the tactics of the Jesuits never change. That's why if you don't know their history, you can't know what's going on now. To drive us from our homes, 
and has now a large mercenary army advancing to carry on against us a, as a war of extermination. It has through its emissaries incited the merciless savage. Same language used in the Declaration of Independence. And down in Texas, that would be the Comanches and the Apaches. And they were savages. With the tomahawk and the scalping knife to massacre the inhabitants of our defenseless frontiers. And so he goes on. These and other grievances were patiently borne by the people of Texas until they reached that point at which forbearance ceases to be a virtue. We then took up arms in defense of the national constitution. That's called the sword of just defense, championed by John Knox. The sword of just defense, championed by John Witherspoon. The sword of just defense, championed by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and Baptist Calvinists against political tyrannies that are always run by the Jesuits and their agents on the face of the Lord's first. Always, through other secret societies, but always traceable to Rome. We are therefore forced to the melancholy conclusion that the Mexican people have acquiesced in the destruction of their liberty and the substitution, therefore, of a military government that they are unfit to be free and incapable of self-government. This is where we American people are today. We've acquiesced in the destruction of our liberty. We've got a military government since March 9, 1933. And we're unfit to be free and incapable of self-government because we're illiterate and we can't even write our names. Thank you, Department of Education, you wicked sinners. The necessity of self-preservation, therefore, now decrees our eternal political separation. And so then he says it at the end. We, therefore, the delegates with plenary powers of the people of Texas, that means absolute power of the people of Texas, in solemn convention assembled, appealing to a candid world for the necessities of our condition, do hereby resolve and declare that our political connection with a Mexican nation has forever ended, and that the people of Texas do now constitute a free, sovereign, independent republic and are fully invested with all the rights and attributes which properly belong to independent nations and conscious of the rectitude of our intentions, we fearlessly and confidently commit the issue to the decision of the supreme arbiter of the destinies of nations, which they all know was the Lord Jesus Christ because all those people were reading the Bible. They were reading the King James Bible. And this is exactly what needs to be done now in this country, by each state, and if the state won't do it, the county needs to do it. We need to separate from it and start our own sovereign nation, county or state once again, so that we cannot be blamed for all the foreign wars and attacks and invasions in all these countries over the last 90 years by a military government that couldn't care less about us, and they just want to establish the temporal power of the Pope. That's all the American government's being used for, and it has nothing to do with the Declaration of Independence in 1776 on that glorious day of July 4th. Well, then what are you telling us about July 4th for, Brother Eric, and Declaration of Independence? I'm telling you what we had how we lost it, how that is a Protestant doctrine of declaring independence from a political tyranny, and how that same principle that is so wonderfully enshrined in the Declaration of Independence is the same principle that we can use today if we will truly repent, turn from our wicked ways, believing the gospel that Christ, and that's not work salvation. Godly sorrow worketh repentance unto salvation, not to be repented of. Repentance is intimately involved in faith. Christ said, unless ye repent, you shall likewise perish. 
And so it is now. Repent or perish. And part of repentance is believing the gospel, that Christ died for your sins, was buried, and rose again. The gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. And upon we white men truly believing the gospel and being saved, we now need to return to the Reformation Bible, the King James Bible, and we need to start reading it. Because it's the word of God for English-speaking peoples. And as we return to that Bible, and we're truly in Christ, we're truly saved, we need to know the history of our forefathers who, who brought forth the sword of just defense in the face of political tyranny. And they did it then, and we can do it now, because the Spirit of God in them will work in us the same way. Hebrews 12.4, and he reproaches these Hebrew Christians in the book of Hebrews by saying, You have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin. What's it going to take for you men to start resisting this? What's it going to take for you to realize the commerce is about destroyed? What's it going to take? Is it going to take the destruction of the money for you to realize and wake up that, that, that life is now and that you need to do something about your political situation? That the Jesuits have forced down our throat with the filthy Jesuit jab and the, the AKA coronavirus? We're going to put up with this? We're going to keep submitting to this? You think it's going to get better? Or are we going to act like women and then just crawl before them and beg for mercy? They're not giving us any mercy, man. You remember, you remember what the Croats did to the Serbs in the Thirty Years' War. They put the men in cages and they made those men watch as all those Croat savage Roman Catholics took turns raping their wives, raping their daughters, and raping their mothers. That's exactly what the papacy does to women when their men are conquered by a foreign army. Now, you want to watch that? Huh? I'd rather die first. Die resisting unto blood, striving against sin. And we better do it. We better do it. In conclusion, may we remember our glorious American Declaration of Independence and the men who signed it and promoted it. May we remember the glorious Declaration of Independence of the state of Texas, the men who signed it, the men who promoted it, the men who fought it, the men who created a new nation called the Sovereign Nation of the State of Texas that joined our beloved union of these United States of America in 1845. All this is white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And it takes white men, righteous white men, to resist wicked white men. That's the, that's the Reformation. And if we're bred out of existence, do you think they're going to stand against the white power structure when the white power structure brings in the Chinese and the Russians? You think they're going to stand against them? We better start preserving our race, our language, our people. We better start preserving our history. We better start reading our Reformation Bible. And it's those people that brought about a new nation in 1776, fought a war for eight years, and God intervened time after time after time, for which reason they won. And if they did it, if God did it before, he can do it again. But we must meet him on his terms. Of true repentance towards God, faith towards Christ knowing true history, supporting pastors that are going to preach these kinds of things. Because I'll tell you, pastors like this, and I'm one of them, we're, not, we're supported by very few people. And it can be very discouraging sometimes. And you can wonder, is anybody listening? And if not, well then let's just go fishing. Huh? Like Peter. I go fishing. Time to repent, my friends.
Time to believe the gospel. Time to recognize this is a wonderful, glorious day that established the greatest nation in world history, these United States of America, on July 4th, 1776. God help us to remember it and do that very same thing within our state or within our county after repentance and great awakening and then the resistance to papal tyranny. Because that's what happened in Texas. That's what happened in America. That's what happened in the Netherlands. May it happen here. So I trust that this has been helpful to you. Have a happy white Anglo-Saxon Protestant and Baptist Calvinist Independence Day. And I'll be with you again, Lord willing. Until then, Maranatha.